Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy and I am back again with Ben Bolin. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for uh, having me back. Yeah, we have been talking about McCarthyism. Ben is the host of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, and so that's all about conspiracies. So we're focusing on a very famous conspiracy in American politics today, the Red Scare, Joseph McCarthy, Mm -hmm. blacklisting in Hollywood. And just to catch you guys up, if you... If you listened to the last episode a little while ago, we talked about the post-World War II fear of communism abroad and at home in the U.S. and how that in turn led to the creation of the House Un-American Activities Committee, which Ben and I are abbreviating as the HUAC, which in turn uh, promoted its investigations in part by focusing a lot on Hollywood and a lot on celebrities. And we're finally going to talk about that some more today. Um, But throughout the government, becoming kind of, quote, tough on reds became really important politically. And there was so much fear and paranoia among people. It was easy for an enterprising politician to capitalize on. And that's where we left off last time. Uh, One such enterprising politician who had found the perfect way to capitalize on that fear and paranoia. Yes, he was uh, Joseph McCarthy. And Joe at this time, I'm going to call him Joe, uh, Joe at this time saw a tremendous opportunity uh, in that he had the once-in-a-lifetime chance to take his Senate career, which... Was floundering. (laughs) Floundering. Floundering is a great word. Was to take his uh, floundering senatorial career into a new direction, and he delivered a famous speech in February of 1950, uh, wherein he claimed that not only were there real communist sympathizers and subversives in the United States, but in fact, there was a conspiracy, and there was a network of those. We've got an excerpt from this speech. Do you mind if I read it? Yeah, go for it. Okay, I promise I won't do a weird voice or anything. (laughs) And, ladies and gentlemen, while I cannot take the time to name all the men in the State Department who have been named as active members of the Communist Party and members of a spy ring, I have here in my hand a list of 205, a list of names that were made known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party and who nevertheless are still working and shaping policy in that State Department. So strong words. And Mm -hmm. we talked last time about stagecraft. I mean, that point where he says, I I don't have time to list everybody. Mm -hmm. So I just have this piece of paper. Take my word for it. I'm holding this piece of paper in my hand with this list of 205 names. It is so compelling if you were if you were going to see that to get caught up in the idea of, oh, my God, he has a list. He doesn't (laughs) even have there are so many names. He doesn't even have time to mention them during and, this speech. And in his, his defense, he did have a real piece of paper. He did. And one fascinating thing about this to me, this would never happen today. People still don't know what was on the piece of paper uh, because as we said in our cliffhanger last time, mm-hmm. it was not a list of names, clearly. But nobody knows if it was his grocery list, if it was gibberish, mm-hmm. what it could have been. Today, you would have gotten a zoomed-in photo of it. If you had a list and you were waving around, somebody would get a picture of it today. <laughs> and in 1952, oh, here's the thing. His, his I don't want to call it a ploy. His speech works. 
and he starts to get some attention. Now, this is similar to the way that Richard Nixon was able to get some attention through his, uh, through his work in the Hiss espionage and perjury cases. At this point, um, the Senate starts looking into some of his claims because McCarthy's naming some uh, some fairly high-level positions, or at least insinuating. Insinuating. He's not really naming. Right, because it's not really, uh, not so much a, a physical or actual list. And and one thing to mention, too, you know, wondering where this list, not the physical list he was mm-hmm. holding since we've established that was nothing, but where the idea of this list came from. And it possibly came from a 1946 loyalty screening of the State Department employees. But that didn't really it doesn't matter that much where it came from, because, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned 205 when you were when you were quoting his speech there. We mentioned in the last episode that the number of people varied a lot. Mm-hmm. It it clearly didn't come from a, a concrete source because it fluctuated so much. Yeah, that's uh, that's one dead giveaway there, the way that uh, these so-called facts would sort of change to fit McCarthy's purposes. And this is uh, a technique that we're going to see grow, right? He's going to grow it and become more sophisticated with this. Now, he, contrary to... Uh, one of the popular beliefs, McCarthy is not, nor was he ever, a member of the, I'm kidding, a member of uh, (laughs) HUAC, the House on American Activities Committee. He was instead on a different committee called the Committee on Government Operations. These folks, uh, this, this committee itself, didn't mess with Hollywood so much as they did with the State Department and the armed forces. And you might think from, you know, we've discussed already his lackluster senatorial career already. Right. You might think that with his sudden fame with the public, he got, he was given this chair of this committee as sort of a reward. Like, this is a real up-and-coming guy. That's not the case at all. You were hinting at this earlier, but the Senate wasn't convinced by this speech and by the list and everything and even investigated McCarthy's claims, but found them baseless. That didn't really get much play with the media because it was not as compelling as a list. But still, the Senate wasn't looking to promote this guy too much. And uh, so he was given the chair of a committee that hadn't had that much of a presence in the past. It used to be about mainly uncovering fraud in the government, waste, um, not about hunting out communists. But once McCarthy had a staff and had a budget, he really went with it. Yeah, he uh, took this to the next level. Uh, the committee's power to scrutinize government activity at, at, at all levels really gave his group free reign to uh, – it gave them enormous latitude to start investigating or, I guess, carrying out the pretense of an investigation on on numerous people, numerous positions. Now, he begins to have hearings to root out communist subversives. Uh, 1953, he, he starts these hearings um, in, in a very interesting way. They, they have a little bit of, a, of an MO to them, some commonalities. One is uh, the way in which a person is defined as being guilty, right, of being a communist subversive. If you have been associated with the Communist Party in the past in any way, then you are 
still a communist today in in the um, McCarthy eyes. And we often throw around the phrase McCarthyism or a witch hunt, uh, you know, calling back to the Inquisitions uh, as a way of using shorthand to refer to this. Mm -hmm. What we're concretely saying is that this differs from a genuine legal investigation because it's, uh, it's a crime of guilt by association. You're presumed guilty before you even start Mm. rather than as normal when you're presumed innocent. Um, And the only way that you can prove your loyalty, you can't defend yourself because defending yourself implicates you. Right. The only way to really prove your loyalty, quote, is to name names, name people who might be associated with the Communist Party, Mm -hmm. name other people who have some sort of connections. And that's really, I think, the key of McCarthyism. That's the only way out is to make the list get bigger, sort of this um, pyramid scheme almost of naming other names. What a great way to say it, because it's it's strange. The only way that you can prove you're not a part of uh, McCarthy's conspiracy theory is by enlarging the scope of his conspiracy conspiracy. theory. And um, this comes into play even more when people begin to criticize his methods. They criticize his lack of proof. Now, keep in mind the entire time that this is occurring, the McCarthy star power, for lack of a better word, is building because he is a righteous American preventing the spread of uh, Soviet influence. So it's becoming more and more dangerous to criticize this guy. Uh, People who criticize his methods or say, hey, maybe you should have some proof uh, <laughs> occasionally. Um, later, coincidentally enough, uh, come under suspicion of being communist subversive. So if you have a problem with the way McCarthy conducts his investigations, then clearly the only reason you would have that problem is that you yourself are a red. You had something to hide. And he really did make sure to target a wide class of people, too. So it's not just if you were in a particular industry, you were under threat. We're talking about politicians and professors and journalists, of course, which all help with the control. And I mean, you even have some specific names. There are so many, but you, you oh, picked yeah, a yeah. few out that are real real important for, for the history of this. Yeah, so uh, a professor like Owen Lattimore would come under fire. Um, now, we know historically that when this sort of panic has set in, uh, the academics are some of the first people to come under suspicion. Uh, Journalists, of course it makes sense that a journalist like Drew Pearson would be implicated for criticizing McCarthy because this was, in some ways, a media-driven power play. Yeah, media had gotten him where he was by mm-hmm. promoting this this speech in front of the women's group and the list and everything. Mm-hmm. And if the media started to doubt his methods and whether there was any evidence, it seems like his, his whole kingdom could crumble pretty quickly. So you want to certainly have the media concerned about their, their own jobs. And then he starts swinging a little bit above his weight class to, because <laughs> one of the things he does is we, we mentioned that he has also called into question 
politicians. Now, uh, one would be William Benton, but also he's made uh, some, let's say, some innuendos about the Eisenhower administration, members of that administration. And he also uh, starts to investigate higher-level members of the military. Now, of course, we know Eisenhower uh, served in the military before he became president, so this is, at the very least, ambitious. It's his territory. It's Eisenhower's territory, for sure. And before we... we that's hinting, certainly, at <laughs> and McCarthy's downfall, getting in a little over his head, but we should talk, too, more about how he runs the runs a show, almost, and, mm-hmm. and maybe even play a clip of that, but um, just to, to give an example of how small a world this became, after the three Democrats on his committee resign over some unilateral staff hiring issues, you know, not consulting with the committee before hiring the staff, a lot of the Republican senators on the committee stop showing up, too, because McCarthy will call these hearings suddenly. It'll be a very short notice. It'll be an inconvenient location. And so people sort of stop coming. And it, it really does become McCarthy's show. McCarthy, his his lead counsel. And um, let's play a clip of, of one of these interrogations. I will not give those names to them when they say that our function in coming back on the committee is not to expose and prosecute communists. Senator, would you like to hear this? It's about you. But they, in effect, say our function is not to expose I'm always there to use that when I want her, and you they, always they say referred to me. Please, I want, please. When you asked me, and I'd say this, that I was listening now, to what you had to I'm say, face this. and it, you don't have to have everybody have. looking at you all the time you're talking. Now, from the clip we just played, uh, th- there are a couple things that are apparent. Um, there, There's a very specific almost bullying style. I mean, let's take out the almost there. There's there's a bullying style to this. Now, anyone who has seen congressional hearings before knows that they're certainly not the most merry and amiable places, <laughs> you know, or conversations. Uh, but as, as McCarthy's power grows, the public wants to see more of this. They want more access to this uh, this McCarthy investigation. Proto-reality television. What You know what? That is such an accurate thing to say. <laughs> In April of 1954, uh, McCarthy's latest hearings become broadcast on national television, and the American public gets the chance to observe firsthand the senator's way of speaking, the method to his madness, yeah, right? Yeah, what is this guy like in action? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What does he consider evidence? Uh, what does he listen for? How does he react? Um, what to him is, if anything, proof of innocence? And uh, the public does not like it. No, it doesn't look very good. And and unfortunately for McCarthy, he'd kind of already caused himself a little bit of trouble shortly before this. One of his aides had used the McCarthy connection to get himself a good position when he was drafted into the army. Kind of an ironic situation when mm-hmm. you are taking on the army. And so in April 1954, when uh, McCarthy and, and his uh, his company started questioning members of the armed services about 
their alleged involvement with the Communist Party or the Soviet government, his tactics really did start to look sort of unsavory. They mm-hmm. did look like bullying. It, it, it looked, uh, it didn't look like what people were imagining this sort of crusader type to, mm-hmm. to, to be. And, um, his, his opposing side, the special counsel for the army, Joseph Nye Welch, was really great at outmaneuvering him too. He was able to, um, call out the lack of evidence and the style of his delivery as being inappropriate. And quite famously says, quote, Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of decency? That's really the point when the public turns on McCarthy. They're all watching raptly at home, these these hearings. But what's so interesting to me, it's a little hard to imagine, isn't it, that people would all be watching something like this now. Mm-hmm. But television plays such a huge role in the downfall of McCarthy because we've we've just discussed his taking on the army, getting in a little over his head, but he also goes after the wrong newsman eventually. Yeah, he goes after the worst possible newsman for him to target. Uh, McCarthy has, uh, you know, I I very rarely use the word epic, Sarah, (laughs) because I think that that word, like awesome or brilliant, has kind of been watered down. So in the classical sense, this is an epic confrontation that, that evolves when McCarthy and Edward Murrow start butting heads. Now, at this time, Edward Murrow has a show called See It Now. And we should say, too, this is slightly before the Army hearings. This is, yeah, and the chronology is slightly before the Army hearings. So at this time, uh, Murrow and his co-workers, his team, uh, they are like any other members of the media establishment. They do not want to be blacklisted. They do not want to be targeted as possible communist subversives. So they do the whole nine that people of this time do. They take the loyalty oath. They publicly, and uh, I won't say gratuitously, but they publicly and emphatically uh, uh, pronounce their loyalties to the American way of life, uh, the you know the west the western side of the cold war you know uh but edward murrow and his his group begin an investigation of mccarthy now when they first start doing this they're not confronting him with it so the so so for a very long time before mccarthy and murrow publicly butt heads murrow is gathering Evidence. He's he's picking up, and this is so clever. He's picking up contradictory statements that McCarthy is making, and and facts that have changed to suit um, McCarthy's purpose at the time. And he's just storing it. He's biding his time, and he's waiting, which I think is. Um, a, a masterful Pretty move. genius. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that I, I consider really masterful is he doesn't debut it in an attack on McCarthy. He mm-hmm. he debuts the suggestion that he might be up to something by covering a case of an Air Force lieutenant who has been dismissed over his mother and sister's communist ties. Just a, a good story, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, not too long after that program aired on See It Now, uh, the lieutenant was reinstated. So at that point, clearly, Murrow is a target of McCarthy. Mm-hmm. But because Murrow has been working so carefully all along, um, 
you know, preparing for winter <laughs> by gathering <laughs> yes. information, he's ready to go already. He's got the information he needs, and he's ready to put out a show that's not just about a lieutenant who's been affected by um, this this whole situation. Guilt by association, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but McCarthy himself. Yes, he's going after the biggest fish of McCarthyism, the man himself. And now, this may seem predictable. McCarthy's initial response uh, to Murrow's uh, to Murrow's evisceration, really, on See It Now, is uh, to, in a in a sort of, I'm just saying, way, he kind of points out the, a few few choice passages from something Murrow had written earlier, <laughs> and ultimately implies that perhaps Murrow himself is a communist. Because otherwise, you know, of course, why else would you have a problem with it unless yeah. you're unless you yourself are a red? Um, It doesn't work. No, and and Murrow and his network do, of course, allow McCarthy to appear on the show and Mm -hmm. offer some sort of rebuttal. And uh, that doesn't do McCarthy any favors either, because you were talking about Murrow's See It Now program on McCarthy being an evisceration. But it's not as though Murrow were editorializing on the subject. Not at all. He, He very much allowed... McCarthy's own words to speak for themselves, using clips of McCarthy, pictures of him, quotes from him, and then, of course, giving him the second hour, or I don't know, however yeah, long the show was. His time to respond. Yeah, yeah. to to speak for himself again. Um, it, it didn't put McCarthy in a favorable light. That happened in March 1954. He responded a month later. Of course, April 1954, also when all of these televised army hearings are going on. Yes. It's just the perfect storm of bad media coverage for McCarthy. Live, national, whatever it may be, he doesn't look good. No, he does not look good. And his colleagues in the Senate are catching wind of this as well. Now, remember, he wasn't everybody's favorite person in the beginning. And it's strange that this is such a brief period of time. It's, you know, it's pretty much four years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, as his, as his star is fading or maybe plummeting, um, in December of 1954, the Senate votes to censure him or they, they basically, they vote to publicly rebuke him. And although he will remain in the Senate for, more than two years after this, his reputation is ruined, and uh, he is no longer, um, no longer even a, a, a commands a fraction of the public attention he once held. No, he does, of course, continue to speak out against communism, but he doesn't even live much longer than this. He dies in 1957 at a fairly young age mm-hmm. of complications from alcoholism. Um, so. Yeah, you you really can look at this 1954 end date to his work related to, well, certainly McCarthyism, since mm-hmm. it bears his name, but, but this second wave of the Red Scare. That's not to say, though, that it ended when he was censured, when he was uh, eventually voted out, when he died. Of course, numerous academics and entertainers, government officials, uh, people found that these accusations had permanently damaged their careers. It wasn't something that you could just everybody agreed, well, McCarthy, what were we thinking there for a few years? (laughs) Do you want to come back and get your old job again? Of course, 
it's not going to work like that. Didn't happen. No, unfortunately, uh, that was not the case. Association with those hearings or with someone involved could still be enough to have an impact on one's career. And as we know, the uh, HUAC continued its investigations uh, and did not need McCarthy's public image or help because, again, they weren't really associated. Exactly. The HUAC hearings could have exactly that same effect of permanently damaging your career. And uh, we talked a little bit in the last episode about how the HUAC initially focused on Hollywood and especially on celebrities to really promote their their mm-hmm. cause and, and get some media attention behind it. And while some of the early hearings were with these friendly witnesses, others were about making people name names. And after that first round of big stars that they called in 1947, um, there came a batch of writers, directors, and a producer who were called the Hollywood Ten. And um, instead of participating in these hearings, the Hollywood Ten didn't think that the committee had the right to question them and mm-hmm. challenge the committee's authority to do so and eventually spent a year in federal prison for contempt of court. Uh, the HAC really kept going in Hollywood until 1952, but ultimately more than 300 people were blacklisted. And those blacklists did last. Uh, they They lasted, some people consider that they lasted until the the early 60s when there was finally a, a lawsuit. It was, of course, made worse, too, by the 1950 publication of the pamphlet Red Channels, and that had some really famous names in it. Mm-hmm. And Red Channels, uh, this, this pamphlet, uh, pretty much existed to tell the readers that other people were communists. So this red channels refers to the channels through which the reds communicate uh, to secretly overthrow the U.S. government via Hollywood. Or, I mean, it's not necessarily Hollywood, uh, not necessarily only celebrities. All in the kinds of entertainers. I mean, we yeah. can list a few of them here. Leonard Bernstein, Orson Welles, Lena Horne. Alan Lomax, Burl Ives. Commies all. <laughs> um, Burl Ives, I, I read a little bit more about him because I was thinking, oh, my gosh, he's the snowman on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> um, he was able to maintain a career through the 50s because he was willing to to talk to the talk to people, you know, mm-hmm. um, name names. But um, I found this story by an actress named Marsha Hunt really compelling. She was at the height of her career in 1950. She had been in movies throughout the 40s, and she was on the brink of a television deal. She had offers from three networks. She was just waiting to hear in 1950. And then her name is published in Red Channels, and um, with six citations of of suspicious things she had done. And um, she she talked about how those were all things, it wasn't made up. They were all things she had done and things that she did believe in, but things that she never would have considered subversive in any way. Oh, that's exactly what she said. She said, quote, I was amazed to learn that they were considered subversive in some way. And um, she also gave a great example of how hard it was to clear your name with, with, uh, 
cases like this and um, or not even cases, just the suspe- just your name is published and suddenly all your network deals disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, she talked about how there was just nothing she could do. She tried writing letters to the networks explaining that she didn't know about communism. She didn't care for communism. She had tried to serve her country in the best way she could during World War II. Never heard back from any of them. Because the, possibly their response could have been something that <laughs> yeah, you got never them know. in red channels. Suddenly you have a subversive connection then. Um, but, of course, a bunch of creative people unable to to work look for other places. I think the theater was apparently not as not affected, or mm-hmm. at least Marsha Hunt mentioned that she was able to continue working in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, too, the, the theme of witch hunts gets into entertainment too mm-hmm. into plays people write into movies that people make it's a it's a um, captivating theme yes it's a captivating theme and it's one that resonates uh clearly resonates with the creative community at the time but it also resonates with the national consciousness at this point and uh you know one of the most famous examples of that would be Arthur Miller's The Crucible ostensibly about witch trials Salem uh, <laughs> yeah right <laughs> I, I, yeah i should have said that ostensibly about the Salem witch trials um and also on some level clearly about the uh HUAC investigations the the um need to as we say name names now, uh, Marsha Hunt serves as a great example of how this actually happened. One thing that this situation makes us do is is play a little bit of a what-if game. What if Marsha Hunt had gotten a television show? You know, what would have happened? What What would our opinion of her be today? Unfortunately, we'll never know because her career was cut short. And it was cut short um, because of this panic. And um, I guess at this time, I should put in a disclaimer uh, for everyone listening, <laughs> because this is such a recent event over the span of history. And it reminds me of that William Faulkner quote um, quotation where he notes that the past hasn't really even passed yet. Um, by which he means, and I am paraphrasing, sorry. I hope nobody sends you <laughs> bad mail about that. But um, Send them to Ben, mm-hmm, whatever send, your, your podcast email is. <laughs> please please do send them to me. And uh, the, the point that Faulkner makes in there is that it's, it's difficult for us to see the long-term consequences or ripple effects of some events. Now, the second Red Scare, if we look at this from our very recent retrospective uh, stance, then we can see that the Red Scare was what people call a moral panic. Now, a moral panic is different from something like uh, a panic over microbes in the water, for instance. You know, that's a discernible thing, and you can take concrete steps mm-hmm. to, to prevent a public health problem. Um, but a moral panic uh, is a widespread public anxiety or an alarm uh, because there's a threat that seems to to uh, endanger our moral fabric, our values, uh, the American way, the apple pie, the mom with the apron, the whole nine. And these 
things are not you are neither unique to our culture nor unique to this period in time um, of course the national atmosphere of the time is uh, sort of ripe for the the conspiracies of Jerusalem in the international McCartney. atmosphere absolutely absolutely because this is a global this is a global battle a global ideological battle so McCarthy, of course, was able to take advantage of that situation, though, by presenting a very intimidating front. He had this influence. He had a real ability to ruin somebody's career, really disrupt their life, uh, because a lot of the sources that would normally fact check or criticize his investigations and allegations were too intimidated to speak up. We talked about how he was going after journalists, too. We talked about how... Murrow's coverage was such a huge deal. It's kind of amazing nobody does anything like that before 1954, if this has gone on for four years. Um, but protesting the McCarthy meth- methods, protesting against uh, McCarthy himself, too loudly at least, could be interpreted as communist sympathies. Mm-hmm. Which is why uh, Edward Murrow had to be so very meticulous and principled in his analysis. Uh, Now, of course, this was criticism, but to have pursued this any other way would have very likely put his career in danger. Today, Joseph McCarthy, um, most people remember him as uh, an opportunistic, perhaps power-hungry individual who clung to this conspiracy theory, maybe for the attention maybe because he really believed it. And now McCarthyism has become synonymous with inquisitions, uh, witch hunts, bullying. Even though it was not initially a negative term. No, it wasn't It was something all. about being principled and, mm-hmm. and uh, determined to root out something that you strongly did not believe in. Right, yeah, that's such a great point. This wasn't always a pejorative. So there's a continuing debate today about Joseph McCarthy and his role. You'll hear some people who support uh, McCarthy saying that perhaps he had access to documents that were classified that the American public wouldn't know about. Maybe that's why it seemed as though there was no proof. Um, There are historians who will also say that some of, not all by any means, but some of the people investigated did have relationship with the Soviet government. Um, There are some people who say that he is a flawed hero and that he's been swindled by history. Those arguments, uh, those last arguments especially, are largely considered revisionist arguments, although it is true um, that we did learn more about this situation in recent years. It only makes it more complicated and I really think more interesting, but... um before we, we wrap up on McCarthy, I want to get into the conspiracy theory again and, and get your analysis on what did, what did he do wrong? Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> what makes him a, what makes him a conspiracy theorist? Ah, uh, okay. Yes. What makes him a conspiracy theorist? What makes, uh, makes me throw him in with some of the other crazy, crazier folks is that, uh, he, practiced a sort of confirmation bias primarily. He looked for things that conformed to his pre-existing idea. Ignoring the rest. 
Yes, and ignoring the rest. Uh, today we would call it cherry picking. So in, in the investigations, you can see that he takes quotes out of context uh, or even an event out of context. You can see that he believes in guilt by association. Uh, the Air Force member that we mentioned earlier uh, was guilty by association only because of his uh, wife, right? His mother and his, his sister. His mother and his sister. And uh, that didn't have really much to do with him, except that he knew them. Um, and then perhaps most importantly, he did not substantiate his claims. Now, again, people who would defend Joseph McCarthy uh, will say that some of his claims have been substantiated in later declassified documents, like the Venona papers. However, um, as far as taking quotes out of context, confirmation bias, believing in guilt, uh, guilt by association, in those terms, this is a conspiracy theory, and he was not going to let a couple of things like facts interfere with that. Um, interestingly enough, we can see some of we can see some of those practices in some world governments today. In North Korea, for example, guilt by association is is practiced. Um, on a generational level. Well, and, and McCarthy, over all of those points you just named, there's the gloss of his his bullying, or that's how most right. people describe yeah. it, his his presentation of all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I One of the first things when you suggested this topic I thought of was uh, Julia Child's husband, Paul Child. And um, our producer, Lizzie, and I had been talking recently about Julia Child's great memoir, My Life in France. Mm-hmm. And I remember that there is a part where... Um, her husband is is implicated because um, he's a he works in the foreign service and he's called back to Washington for questioning and everything, um, but Julia Child refers to to McCarthy and to um, his disciples sort of and and describes them as bully boys these these younger younger McCarthy guys who mm. who come to to Paris and are investigating the foreign service there uh, really. Just such a straightforward description. I think it gets everything across. Everybody knows what a bully is mm-hmm. <laughs> and how a bully acts. And I think that that's really what makes all of this possible. Because if you just take quotes out of context or believe in guilt by association but don't have the personality, the bullying personality to right. put it off, yeah. you're not going to get any any airtime. Yes, that's such a good point, uh, the bullying especially, because – who would listen to this if they did not feel compelled to? Now, as as we've said, uh, this event did happen so recently in history that it is it is possible, if not plausible, it is possible that perhaps later some sort of declassified document from the KGB era will show up that completely vindicates. Okay, and and and, and I'm not saying it's probable or even plausible. But it is is just not quite impossible that maybe uh, some document will come out and will turn out that uh, his conspiracy theory was true. However, based on the way he handled it, it seems as though uh, this clearly was not the case. Well, and and regardless of whether the conspiracy theory proved to be true, so many people who clearly had nothing to do with any of this lost their livelihoods and had their lives shaken up. Absolutely, which is why, uh, especially if you're going to be conducting an investigation like this, it's it's probably better to not be 
quite as bombastic. But power is a crazy thing. And access to power, the opportunity to uh, garner more power, will make some people do some very, very odd stuff. Uh, thank you so much for letting me uh, be on your show. Thank you for joining me. And I certainly want to recommend that folks check out other weird Cold War conspiracies on your show, Ben, stuff they don't want you to know. I'm sure you guys have covered lots of bizarre things. Oh, gosh, <laughs> yeah. We have, we, we have lots of bizarre stuff. We have, a couple of, uh, we have a couple of episodes that will touch on Cold War things um, and the KGB. Uh, we're always interested to hear more, so if you have any suggestions for topics we should cover, please let us know. This was a lot of fun, the McCarthy episode. Uh, stuff, by the way. It was. And if you have suggestions for the History Podcast, you can email us at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're on Twitter at Missed in History, and we are on Facebook. And I just thought it would be fun to wrap up with a more upbeat fact. Um, Not too long ago, the Writers Guild eventually corrected the credits on many films that they were re-released, or that were being re-released, that had had blacklisted professionals listed under pseudonyms. Because some of these people, they needed to work. They couldn't leave the country or something. Um, So they continued to work, but they wrote under different names. And some of these are finally being corrected and restored to the, um, you know, it can be on their IMDb page now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that's a nice gesture for Mm -hmm. something like this. It certainly can't make up for um, a career that's dramatically affected. But to get your credit or to have the families be able to see their family member if they've already passed on, see their name restored to something they had worked on, I think is really cool. What a wonderful thing. That is a little bit of sunlight through the clouds. It is. If you don't want sunlight, though, you can go read the article on how McCarthyism works. Get right back into it. Uh, You can find that on our homepage. It's at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.